we're thinking about the unexpected king. Now, Palm Sunday, if you're a Christian, part of believing in Jesus, following him, is accepting him. Oh, I've got some things here. Let me move those. As king of your life. And that means that he is the boss of what you do. And following Jesus can be, first of all, very exciting. And I think I might be right that this, am I right? This is the, the sign for excitement, I think. So maybe we could go with that. Go like this. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. So it can be exciting. God promises a good life and it's, it's joyful and you're, he's got hope for the future. You're accepted and you're loved and all that is good. The next thing, following Jesus can be an adventure. Anyone got a sign for an adventure? An adventure. Oh, I like it, Mr. Prime. An adventure. Yeah, it can be an adventure. Um, because sometimes Jesus takes us to places we wouldn't normally go. We find ourselves with people or in situations we wouldn't be in if we weren't following Jesus. But living with Jesus can also be a bit sometimes troubling. Anyone got a good sign for troubling? Hmm. Benji, you got one for troubling? Go on then. Ooh, I like it. Ooh. Let's do this. A bit troubling. Ooh. It can be a bit troubling. And it can also be a bit disappointing sometimes. We got a sign for disappointment. Oh, I like it. Oh, no. So troubling. Oh, and disappointment. Because sometimes we think God isn't doing what we want him to do. (laughs) He doesn't do it how we expect. We can't contain him or tell him what to do. Sometimes it is a bit of a mystery. Now, I started following Jesus in a time when I was quite desperate It was a bit of a disaster in my life, and I literally called out, Jesus, that is it, I am yours, and that's where it started. And through my life, sometimes it's been exciting and adventurous, sometimes it's been troubling, and I've been questioning what's going on, sometimes it's been disappointment, because God hasn't done what I wanted him to do. Now, today we're thinking about Palm Sunday, when Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, I think somewhere I have my donkey. Here he comes. Here he is. Get down, donkey. And I have a Jesus. On goes Jesus. And in front of you, if you rifle around in the chairs, you may find some words on a piece of paper. So if you find any words... Either get ready to read them yourselves or give them to someone else who will. And if you've got a wavy thing, I'd like you to come with your wavy thing into the aisle and get ready to wave it as the donkey comes past. So we've got a bit of chaos going on. Excellent. We've got some wavy things. That's superb. Okay, and if you don't have a wavy thing or a word, you can get an instrument and come and join in, the, in this aisle, please. So we've got loads of people lining the way. And we're going to imagine that we are now in Jerusalem. And 
And all of us live in hope for a king to come. We have been waiting hundreds of years for the king to come and save us. Okay? So we are desperate for him to come. We have prayed day and night for hundreds of years, God save us. God save us. And we've been agonizing over how long, God, will it take before you come and save us? So that's our picture, okay? There are 100,000 of us, okay? We've got to pretend each one of you is going to be 1,000, okay? And I want you to stand up, and we're going to make a lot of noise. And if you're going to say something, you're really going to have to yell at the top of your voice to get over the crowd. Are you ready? Everyone's got something? Because this is the big day. This is when it's all going to happen. God has sent his king finally. And this is going to be the answer to all our problems. (laughs) Are you ready? Go donkey. Go everyone else. Woo! You may return to your seats for a couple of minutes. That was so good. Now, if you imagine the people who were there, there would have been 100,000. They're screaming and yelling, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's going to be the answer to everything they have hoped for. But in a few days' time, they're going to be very disappointed because he is going to be dead. So we got a bit of a taste now of what it was like in Jerusalem on that day. Now, I'm going to continue talking, but kids, at the back, the lovely youth are going to help you do some crafty stuff. There's lots of different activities, or if your mum or dad or carer thinks you might need to run around, they can hop to the back now. So I'm going to give you a few minutes. And while they're doing that, you guys can get your Bibles and find the book of Zechariah. There's your challenge. If you're on a phone, of course, it's easy. And when people have got a number, that would be great. And we're looking at Zechariah chapter 9, and it's page 954. This is your chance, kids, to choose your area. Outside, at the back, I don't mind. 
but Vicky and Emma are there to help you, and James, the donkey. <laughs> Excellent. Fantastic. So we're looking this morning at Zechariah chapter 9. And why we're doing this is because uh, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, this is the prophecy that is on the minds of those screaming and yelling and rejoicing and welcoming him in. Now, Zechariah writes his book at a time when Israel are really discouraged, desperately discouraged. It's a time of deep disappointment for them. They have... uh, been in exile and they've returned. They've started rebuilding. Some things are happening. But the fullness of all they hoped for, the restoration, the financial and economic boom they were hoping would happen, um, their global influence has just not happened. They are still basically nobody. They live in poverty. It's a time when they are asking where is God. And Zechariah comes and he speaks of the comings and goings that will continue to affect them as global superpowers come and go in that region. But he puts in it a promise that they are to cling on to, that one day God will restore all things. And here in chapter 9, we see these words of hope that we're going to focus on today. And we're just going to do some of them. And uh, that's never going to be big enough, so hopefully you've got it. We're going to look at chapter 9 and verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now, I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. And I'm going to stop there for today. And you can go on and read that. Um, It's well worth reading through um, this book. So we see in these opening bits, we get this triumphal picture of the king entering Israel. And he comes to the people. The Messiah has come, God's representative. Um, And when they see him, it says righteousness and victorious. We see a picture of a king who comes to bring justice something they so desperately need at that moment while they are under the Roman rule. We see that this king will overthrow the forces of evil. And who do they think are evil? Obviously those who are oppressing them. And Israel has lived in hope of this day as nation after nation has oppressed them and ruled over them, and they've longed for freedom. And here, on this day, Palm Sunday, is the beginning of the Passover, the time they remember when God came. 
He came in a powerful way to liberate them from the oppressor. At the time was Pharaoh, and they were in Egypt. And he did it in dramatic ways that they have harked back to for years and years. They have told the stories of when God came in power and freed them from oppression. And this is what they're longing for. But it goes on to say that the king will come lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It gives us a different picture of this Messiah, that he comes in an attitude of lowliness. He's one of them. He can relate to them. He's not coming in military battle with tanks and guns. He outwardly appears insignificant. He's humble in his approach. And what will he do? Verse 10 says he'll take away the chariots and the war horses and the battle bows. He will proclaim peace to the nations. Isn't that what they want? Peace across the whole earth. It signals a moment of the beginning of a time of peace. And that is what the people are yelling for, and rightly so. Freedom from from, from oppression and a time of peace. It says his rule will extend from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. And it's giving this picture that they're embracing, that this king will not only rule over them, but will rule over all the nations. And so the picture they're building in their head is of a leader who not only leads their people and their society into a time of prosperity and peace and justice, but is also ruling over the other nations. They are once again, in their minds, top dog. And this is what they're hoping for. But as we see... It wasn't quite what they were hoping for. It wasn't what the people expected, and it wasn't even what his disciples expected. Remember when they asked if they could rule on his right and his left? They were expecting to be ruling over people. And what else? Verse 11 says, As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. It's that picture of people that cannot free themselves. It is impossible. It's the picture of, do you remember Joseph, when his brothers lowered him into a pit he could not get out of unless they put down a rope? That is the picture that's here. It's saying when you cannot help yourself, the king will come and rescue you. It's the picture that David gives in Psalm 40 when he says, you've lifted me out of the pit and the mire the mud and mire, and you've set my feet on a solid rock. And so the call is, what should you do while you're waiting? Verse 12 says, return to your fortress. That symbol of God, the fortress, we see it in the Psalms. God is our fortress, our safe place. And it says, return to the fortress, you prisoners of hope, those that cannot let go of these promises. And it reminds me of when Jesus says to his, he loses loads of disciples when he says, um, you see it in John's gospel when he's talking about, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he loses loads of disciples and then his disciples just say, well, who else should we go to? Who, who can we go to? 
There is nothing else on offer. And it's that sense of the prisoners of hope. They cannot free themselves, and so they must cling on to the hope of God coming. So what happened? Well, it's easy for us to see how expectations of what Jesus was going to do, why they were so high. It's easy to see why they were clinging on, particularly when we see wars in the world today, how desperate people must be for God to come and help and intercede and make it all good again. But Jesus speaks in the Beatitudes, and when he's teaching, his kingdom isn't a military one. It's not one that comes with tanks and bombs and violence. Jesus didn't trigger a violent war of independence. In fact, what he appeared to do was fail. And like those before him and after him that came in very similar ways, they accepted him as king, but it failed. The only difference here was that those that come before him had triggered a mass slaughter, and those that came after triggered a mass slaughter. But in Jesus' case, it was only him. The leaders rejected Jesus. He didn't want to be the kind of king they wanted to force him to be, where they would be the leaders of the whole earth. His disciples rejected him. He didn't fulfill what they thought. He, they ran away. The people rejected him after screaming his name and declaring, he is the one, he's come in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. They turned their back on him because he didn't do what they wanted him to do. They wanted God to rule, but only on their terms. And that is really important for us to remember. They wanted God to rule, but only on their terms. Next week, we celebrate that Jesus rose again. That wasn't the end. It wasn't the failure they thought it was. The disciples at that moment needed to give up their expectations of what Jesus would do or how he would act or what the kingdom would would look like. They needed to set aside their earthly expectations of what ruling and the kingdom of God looked like. They needed to accept what Jesus said, that it was about servanthood and suffering and self-sacrifice, persecution perhaps, forgiveness, and loving their neighbor as themselves. And freedom from oppression and peace was possible, but it would start in individual people, not a massive wave of massacre, but one person at a time. The peace they and we need more than anything is between us and God. The freedom they and we need is from shame and guilt, and fear. And we're prisoners to those things. Jesus' death on the, on the cross sealed the covenant it speaks of, a covenant of peace, 
when we give our allegiance to Jesus. Heaven touches earth. And God comes, the king comes, not to a place or a temple, but to individuals. And when he comes to those individual people, that's where heaven touches earth and the kingdom is made real. And together we're the church and we're salt and light wherever we go. We bring his rule and reign, but it doesn't look violent or aggressive. It doesn't look like people would expect. It's not pushy. It's not bolshy. It's not rude. It's humble, like a king on a donkey. And person by person, it spreads. As Jesus said, the kingdom comes like yeast in dough that spreads out to the whole world the whole earth as they preach the good news of forgiveness and freedom and friendship with God. And the prophet's picture of God uniting and ruling over the whole world has begun. But I want us to take a moment to think about us. We, it's easy for us to look back at the stubborn religious leaders or the silly disciples And yet, as we read these words of Zechariah, we see how easily it is to be swept into that with our expectations. We saw how the children's expectations of their life so far dictated what they thought would be in the gifts. And how easy it is for us to project our hopes and expectations and cultural norms onto the words of Jesus and the words in the Bible. Life with Jesus, as I said, can be exciting and an adventure full of hope. But God can't be contained in a box. We can't say what he will or won't do. We only have to trust that he is good. He calls us to trust him even when we don't understand what he is doing. And therefore, life can often be confusing or troubling, as we talked about. It can be disappointing. It can be incredibly frustrating and painful. God doesn't answer our prayers always how we want him to or in the time frame we would like. It would be very convenient. Following Jesus is about obedience and trust, even as we saw with Jesus, to death on the cross. But I think we remain prisoners of hope. I still identify with those words of the disciples, but to whom else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. It talks about hope being an anchor to our souls. It's the thing that we cling on to when we don't know what is going on or why. And we live for that day when every tear will be removed, when Jesus will be reigning 100% over this earth. But for now, we live in that now and not yet, and it's an uncomfortable place at times. But we need to be just trusting Jesus and seeing what he wants to do rather than us always fighting him, which I do a lot of, of, I think you should do this. We're going to hear now uh, from Tom and Sarah. Um, Sarah's uh, been living with long COVID for two years now. Um, And they're just going to share some of their experience 
answers oh of God, expectations and disappointment in faith and how they continue to follow Jesus even in the complete unknown.